I keep having these stress dreams, not keep, but they've happened a couple of times since we started this where I imagine that like, I forgot to record. Like we talked, like we had like the best episode. We had like a four hour extended conversation. <laughs> the one where, that's, that's going to blow us yeah, out. Dude, we're like, we just hit on so many like deep existential yeah. and philosophical like themes and, you know, like allegories and shit from this one movie. And then like at the end of it, it's like, Oh, psych. I forgot to record all of it. <laughs> and then we have to like do, do a, another version of it. And we're just like, well, I, and then it sucks. And yeah. then we're like, fi- like we give up. We're like, the podcast is it's over. over. Like, we're done. That's it. We're done. Oh man. What a funny, arbitrary little tag to your life to be like actually giving you stress dreams. <laughs> yeah, man, it's weird, but yeah. I guess that's what it is. I yeah. can't, you can't really control. I mean, I guess you, there are people that claim you can control your dreams. I don't know how true that is. These but aren't um, lucid stress dreams. I don't think so. I'd hope not. I hope if I was able to lucid dream, I'd pick something. <laughs> man super casual today super cash (laughs) man super cash right now uh oh i gotta hold on i gotta grab my notebook do you want to intro the episode while i do that so uh what movie are we talking about today we're talking about uh windbreakers (laughs) miles i'm sorry (laughs) Um, i made this mistake often while watching it i I referred to it (laughs) as windbreakers to the people to the friends i was with and and they were like what is this movie and i was like jk it's wind talkers was that like a like were you referring to the jackets or was it like a fart joke no no it was just a bad it was just me fucking up the title of the movie it's a not a good name it's not a good name and it also doesn't really tell you and well Well, there's a lot oh boy okay let's just let's just start here 2002 wind talkers um you know at this i have a lot i feel a woo joint a woo joint. Yeah, the second woo cage collab. Um, incidentally, the probably the least watchable woo movie John that I've ever movie. seen. Yeah. I mean, it's really, some parts of it are horrendous. It's criminal how, yeah. how bad it is. Because he had a great track record, mostly up until now. I mean, uh, Do you yeah. remember Broken Arrow? Yeah. That movie was great. It came out, I think, maybe like a little bit before around the time of Face Off. So like he was like riding high for like the, right. you know for like the the five years before this and he, he, was he kicking could, ass yeah he proved that he could do he could like reinvent hong kong cinema and then just succeed at hollywood too um hollywood Holly, yeah exactly um i i don't know what what it was about well no actually i mean okay so i i said this on the last episode but um this episode is going to be our goodbye episode to the unauthorized biography of Nicolas Cage, the man behind Captain Corelli by Ian Markham Smith and Liz Hodgson. RIP, uh, pour one out. Published by Blake Limited. Put, uh, let me do it again. Edit this so it's good in the episode. Published by Blake Publishing Limited, 3 Bramber Court, 2 Bramber Road, London, W14, 9 PV, England. First published in paperback, 2001, ISBN 1857823966. Dave, there's going to be a whole B-roll of you reading... <laughs> Like the whole book, just reading all the text on every page. It's going to be great. Um, what an invaluable tool. This podcast, we couldn't have done this podcast without this book up until this point. And I'm a little intimidated to uh, go forward without it. But 
Dude, I think that we've got our footing, but it, it yeah. taking the taining, taking Ian Markham Smith, Ian Markham Smith, and Liz Hodgson's training wheels off is yeah. is gonna be it's gonna be a little bit wobbly at first. I think. Yeah, mommy and daddy are are letting go of the bike. <laughs> We're about to ride this tandem bicycle uh, on our own. Did you know? I, I tried to look up their contact information to try it because I still it would be so fun to have them on the show. But um, the only thing I could find is the other book that they collaborated on, which was a Jerry Springer biography <laughs> in oh, the same wow. vein. So, yeah. Um, when did that come out? Do you know? Around the same time. Yeah, okay. Um, have, have, have they each done, did you find stuff that each of them had done on their own or no, were they uh, a team? Ian Markham Smith wrote uh, some articles for uh, some British newspaper, but I couldn't even find the articles. He was just like listed as an author. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't know. They did. Guys, if you're listening, hit us up. We want to talk to you. Um, Okay, so wind talkers. There's. It's weird because you were saying before we started this that you have. You feel like you have almost like nothing to say about it, and uh, and I feel like I have a bunch to say about it, and I kind of don't know where to start. So um, why why don't you go? Do you want to like what what is this movie? Yeah, I will tell you mainly the big thing that I had a huge problem with. I'm sorry to start it off so negative, but let's just really let's just get down to it. Yeah, yeah. Because um, I think I do actually have more to say than I initially thought, but I I feel like it's not going to be very insightful. Um, but regardless, so most war movies, I think uh, their success hinges on two things. Uh, the first being obviously how the 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 style in which you handle the fight scenes now that could yeah. be anything from gritty realism to sort of like overly dramatic you know mm. poetic right uh vista shots i mean it's like however you want to do it the the battle scenes need to have a very very specific style mm. um and they need to be captivating visually yeah um and i think that sometimes to a lesser degree the movie succeeded in that way now the place where it gets tripped up and where I think what really differentiates quote unquote artistic or good war movies as opposed yeah. to just war movies that exist for the sake of, you know, Oh, watch a bunch of shit blow up and people die uh-huh. uh, is how they handle the character development and the dramatic interactions specifically in the, in the like barrack scenes or in the scenes where it's just the soldiers right. like getting down to like, you know, hanging out and 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 the sort of interactions and you know the things that you can glean about the characters from the way they deal with the rest of their you know right no i I think you're right like the two big uh the pillars on which your war movie is 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 is, is, yeah what what why do i care that these characters are being sent to war and do i feel sympathy for them uh, do I feel pity? Do I, th- you know, or, or do I not? Or right. am I made to hate them for X, Y, and Z? But what is the war? What does battle look like? What, what is battle and who is there and why are they fighting? Right. And I think on this second point, this movie utterly failed, <laughs> like 200%. It, it couldn't have gone any worse than it did. Do, do you think it succeeded on the first? I think, no, I don't. <laughs> I think I think John Woo understood how to how to shoot battle scenes, but I don't think that that made it Ooh, successful. I I don't. Well, I think John Woo, uh, John Woo. I mean, he knows it, it he is knows a stylist. To, he, his thing is fight scenes, so you know that right. he knows how to handle that. Now, where I think he got tripped up 
is in trying to make it realistic as opposed to like yeah, almost over. like pseudo kung fu like like individualized hand-to-hand kung fu scenes as opposed to people just like shelling across no man's land well he i mean the i think the problem is is that he tries to strike he tries he lands somewhere in the middle because the the battle scenes are not realistic in in any sense no but there's so but i'm saying when he chose to go with right. the more close you know yeah those are the most thrilling parts easily they're they're the only parts of the movie that i actually enjoyed watching yeah the the where where people are are like fighting up the close. scene where spoiler alert christian slater gets beheaded <laughs> like like that that whole that whole scene and mm-hmm. like the, fight, the whole sequence and like the is, is probably that was, the best that was in the, the movie. best part of the movie yeah, yeah. it is because but, because it almost had like a kill bill feel you know where it was like where, where his was, head gets chopped off with a fucking samurai sword yeah and then everyone gets grenaded. Like it was tight. Like that yeah. scene was cool. I think that was maybe the only scene that I actually like enjoyed. Yeah, it, it, I agree. Let's see. <laughs> Careeraftermilitary.com ranked this movie. The f- <laughs> <laughs> see, I'm, I'm, these are the training wheels are coming off and I'm going online. I'm, I'm picking, <laughs> picking important shit. Yes. Careeraftermilitary.com ranked this the fourth most inaccurate war movie. <laughs> Of all time. Oh, my God. After Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor and the Green Berets starring like an overweight middle-aged John Wayne and the Hurt Locker is number one for... Inaccuracy? I think they they just had an axe to grind. It's not... They don't make a really good... uh, But anyway, and what they say about this, the battle scenes in this... Wait, I'm sorry... Well, never mind. Everyone, if you're curious about this, just visit careeraftermilitary.com. But I am going to check this out, Dave, because I'm curious about the criteria that they use. Like, what was the rubric well, here's for, what, how, for how inaccurate it was? Well they, they, well, they say about the Green Berets that John Wayne is too overweight and that he holds his rifle upside down sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and that it's essentially like a Western, but just with Viet- as Vietnam propaganda, which sounds really bad. I kind of want to see this movie. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. But um, here's literally what they say about wind talkers. Um, no one behaves the way real soldiers do on the battlefield. There is no covering fire or use of concealment when advancing. And all the gunfights seem to take place at a range of about 10 feet. After I read that, um, the career after military.com piece. Um, I was watching the battle scenes and yeah, they, they look like kids on a playground, like just running. It's These people have, uh, these soldiers have like automatic rifles and they're just running at each other on the, with no cover or concealment. Like it says, just firing and getting mowed down and both sides. And then just these explosions, these huge, like when, when you threw a grenade in, uh, at this point, I don't think it like burst out into like a huge plume of fire. It was like, I, yeah, there, there was, there was some cognitive dissonance because it was like Arnold, like action yeah, movie style right. explosions. Yeah, like whenever Rambo. someone threw like one grenade, <laughs> like, a yeah, <laughs> like, I, I think I think to John Wayne or John Wayne John Woo's uh, sensibility, the actual accurate way that these these guys would be fighting, which is hiding and shooting at each other over vast distances, right. and then making like small approaches, like you know, like crawling into like the next ditch or something, you know, like I, that is boring to him. I think because his whole thing is guys 
in yeah like a warehouse like jumping around and firing guns at each other firing two pistols in each hand and like so it's he just kind of like took out the warehouse or like the giant loft from face off or whatever and just added some grass and palm trees yeah like the the battle mechanics don't aren't like translatable yeah and then well which is weird because again the most like the this is a very weird thing to say but i guess this is the word the (laughs) wooiest like the most wooian yeah like the (laughs) uh those scenes were my favorite part and yet they were things that i and i knew while watching too and it's now confirmed thank you career after (laughs) military.com um are not at all the way that an actual war would would work mm-hmm. and so i just think that that's funny that like the only part like the part that he did best was the wrong part <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, and i mean it's it's a pretty low bar in terms of best with this movie i, I because i think the bigger issue is like the way that these guys i mean the way that people fight in any john woo movie is completely ridiculous it's 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 like a ballet but the the stakes in this movie are yeah but like almost chow yun fat i'm like okay right like that's fine i see that totally but well and it usually looks cool and this this movie is all i mean a whole other thing is the the visual style of this movie there's no like flair to it everything is drab like gray really drab and flat and just and yeah yeah. Uh, like the lighting is all just which is crazy because john woo every woo movie i've seen there's so much there's style for days and everything from the cinematography to the wardrobe you know to to the to the to the choreography and so much of this movie was just like i couldn't even tell it, it didn't seem like a john woo movie it like did. i i can i can because i know that i can say oh here's where you failed and i can see what you were going for it and whatnot but like if if i hadn't known it was a john woo movie it would just seem like any other fucking yeah. like uh you know buy for get one free dvd at the walmart like uh bargain bin right like it there's there's so many movies that uh accomplish the the few things that this movie actually accomplishes like and the- uh world trade center comes in that in that pack as well <laughs> yeah definitely um i mean we're kind of entering the like bargain bin uh box period of nick cage's career yeah unfortunately um, we're about two movies away from a total slide into that uh, <laughs> I, I hope so, it's a i hope it's like a water slide though yeah me fun. too uh, and i think it's coming like we it's it's funny that the the timeline of this book and and that point in his career like dovetail yeah well so later later on at, at, when we end this episode i want to talk about uh the the things on the future that uh ian markham smith and liz hodgson saw for nick cage because their predictions of where his career was going um are uh, pretty they're not they're not what happened so uh but <laughs> but what i what i was gonna say is is that like the the bigger problem with the fight scenes besides that they look drab and boring and they are and that's pretty much all there is to look at in this movie is fight scenes and then people like angstily uh talking i will i'm sorry to interrupt again let me just dude you can't have like he had like five half hour like battle scenes i know just like where's your editor man and like how can i not recall like a single one of them 
I, 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 well, because you're introduced to people, like, and then all of us, like, so you're introduced <laughs> to, like, four clearly, like, you know, dispensable privates. Right. There's and racist then, guy. Right. There's mustache guy. And then by Mark 20 Ruffalo. minutes later, they've all been blown up. Yeah. And, and then, they're like, Joey! Yeah, and you're <laughs> like, why what? do I care about this character or care about your relationship with him. Well, okay, and again, the point that I keep... Which, uh, by the way, I feel like Ruffalo was always on the edge of just about to die. Oh my right? god. Like I was shocked that scene, he made it, like, to the end. Every single battle scene, I was like, Ruffalo's gonna get it now. And, and then he, he finally bites it, and you're like, yeah, about time. Yeah, right? Also, like, like really he, anticlimactic compared to all the other near misses he had before that that would have been totally. way cooler deaths. Anyway, I'm yeah. sorry. Okay, so the point that I keep approaching, the big problem is that this movie assumes that the fact that it takes place during world war two is the stakes and, and that we all just, and that we just, you know, that, so now we're invested. That's all the work it needs to do in investing us in why this, why this war is happening. And I mean, we don't, it it doesn't contextualize anything. It doesn't contextualize the war in general. It doesn't contextualize the specific battle that these guys are fighting on Saipan. The whole movie takes place in Saipan pretty much. And I don't know what, where the fuck is, I don't even know where it is. I don't know why, why they were fighting the Japanese there, like what they were trying to do, I guess, take it so the Japanese couldn't have it. Why is that important? What is, why, like, why are any, and then like, we keep getting more micro, like why is, are they trying to take a particular ridge or something in this particular battle scene? You know, none of that is contextual. So it's just they go to an island and then it fight. They're just fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting. And then sometimes they stop and like sleep and then fight more and then argue and then fight more. And it's just like so you don't care who these people are or what the fuck they're doing. And it looks like garbage. And that's the movie. And and it's like two hours long. Yeah, it's endless. The thing I'm wondering about. So it's clear that Wu wanted to make a World War Two movie. Yeah. That's World War Woo. (laughs) Um, But but why did he choose the framework of the Navajo code breakers? Okay. Code talkers. Like why? Well, it came to him. It came to him. Okay, so that that was my assumption. So that's what I was going to. Did it come to him? So then he decided, well, I want to make a World War II movie. I don't. And so I'll just kind of use this as like a loose framework that I'll kind of forget about halfway through and then like maybe dip into every once in a while just to remind people. But like there is a whole, he, so despite the crux of the movie being about the Navajo code talkers, <laughs> right. there was almost no code no code and nothing like there <laughs> they was, code talk like twice. Like there was nothing about the intricacies. No, you know, about that whole division. No, it, it, it's it, yeah. the, Right. So there's this story and I, I want to get into this deeper, but, the, but there's a whole, but we don't really need to. <laughs> well, no, no, no. It's okay. So this is actually really interesting. Okay. Um, so, uh, the, the, wait, so you're saying like the story of the actual code talkers, the story of the oh, actual code see, talkers that's what I'm interested is in. interesting. And the way that it kind of made it to this movie there, there's interesting stuff, but, but I don't know what it was that actually interested actually interested John Woo because right it's not the code that comes up like twice it's not even really the code talkers it's like 
it, it, it his i mean there's a st- there's this story he didn't write the the script and the you know the story plays out with these story beats and you can recognize how we're supposed to feel about it but the weight of the story is not really on that it, it's like it or it's like there's this like kind of here's what I, I think it is. It, it's like this inartfully filmed, it's almost like a TV melodrama about these guys. Yeah. And then just um, arbitrarily cut between just senseless battle, just people in green fighting people in a lighter shade of green and just blowing up and dying f- endlessly. <laughs> for and i guess they're going somewhere or trying oh, to go somewhere I mean, and it, it's just it's just garbage okay so um i i'm gonna read a, a p- kind of long passage from the unauthorized biography of nicholas cage the man behind captain corelli by ian markham smith and liz hodgson and there's there's gonna be uh i this this kind of encompasses everything about this book like it, it uh it it's going to enlighten us about some things. There's going to be some bad jokes and maybe like light racism at the end. Um, it's it, it, anyway, this is, let's take a trip back to 2003 when this was written. <laughs> uh, um, it, it, it had taken years to develop the story of the code talkers far enough along for it to become a movie. Originally co-producer Alison Rosenwig, Alison Rosenwig, had seen the story of the Navajo's role in the war as a documentary. Her brother kept trying to persuade her that it would make a terrific film, but it was only after she discovered that each Navajo had a white bodyguard with orders to kill the man he was protecting if capture appeared imminent that she saw its potential as a movie. Rosenwig said, the moment I read that, I knew it could be a feature film. Okay, so immediately we, uh, we're saying... <laughs> oh, the story of these Navajo guys do it, saving the U.S. Uh, isn't, interesting. isn't interesting. Oh, but there were white people directly involved. Now we've got a movie. Okay, the major obstacle was the audience appeal problem. The large number of World War II films being released by Hollywood and having Native Americans in lead roles. What a problem. Wow, imagine that. Rice man. asked. Also, like, this shit went up. Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but you're no. just just to put it in context. You're, this shit went up against the Thin Red Line, Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> yeah. Um, and what was the other one? Uh, um, Black Hawk Down. Black Hawk Down. There was one with John Travolta that came out, like, yeah. a, like in the same two or three year period. Right. So, like, right before and uh, around. Not to this, mention Captain Curly's Mandolin. Yeah, which is also. Okay, so. Uh, uh, sorry, another no. sidebar. Initially, I thought, well, Clearly, Captain Corelli and Wind Talkers would be a great cage double feature. Yeah. However, hear me out. You know what? I think thematically, the movie that would work even better on on the on the top of that bill than Corelli would actually be Firebirds. Firebirds. So you think that too? Yeah. Yeah. It would be a punishing like three or four hours, but um, like maybe maybe you maybe you'd be considering suicide after that. (laughs) Like why why the yeah. I, I would I would see a supercut of all the best moments of those two films put together into one like equally boring film. It would be two minutes long. There would be the video game helicopter <laughs> yep. scene, and then there would be Christian Slater getting his head cut yeah, off with a samurai yeah. sword. Yeah, Nick Cage <laughs> flying in a computer helicopter. Nick Cage yelling in a laundromat at Sean Young, and like <laughs> high and like karate kicking the air. And, and then, then oh no, Christian- no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. There's 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 one more scene from from Wind Talkers that so it would be. The, so it would be Christian Slater getting his head cut off, and then it would be Nick Cage in slow motion throwing a grenade <laughs> at the Navajo, at, at the old Navajo guy. 
<laughs> White horse. Um, <laughs> Dude, that was fucked, wasn't it? That yeah. scene was fucked. It was really fucked up. Okay, so I, I've got a whole thing to say about okay. it. But um, back to the book. Um, the larger number of World War II films being released by Hollywood and having Native Americans in lead roles, Rice asked, could we have come up with any more strikes against us? However, after more than 13 drafts, yeah, this movie feels like a 14th draft. Holy shit. The screenplay came together, although there were plenty of hurdles to overcome before the movie makers reached their point. Rice went on, I liked the idea of having a war as a background for, quote, red man, white man issues. The more I thought about it, the more intrigued I became. Yes, because that's interesting. Why didn't you implement any of that into the movie? The only, the only, I'm sorry, finish. Rosenwig's passion for the project was fueled by the theme and the characters. She said that the genre was, quote, far less important to me than the relationship between two men with diverse backgrounds. Could have fooled me. She said, it's a story of their growing friendship, basically a heterosexual love story. Okay. Oh. Yeah. Skipping forward. Um... It was really important for them to get Nick Cage um, in the... Why? They had a minimum of $30 million to spend? Dude, this film, by the way, cost $100 million. Dude, why would you cast Nick Cage in this movie? There's no reason for him to be here. He was commanding a lot of money at that point. Like, if you remember Captain Corelli's Mandolin, like, he bumped that budget up to, like, $20 million just by being involved. It blows my mind that that in these movies where Cage is just playing Blood. yeah it's like yeah. why why was he commanding so much money to give that performance this was one of i think his worst performances in, oh uh, yes in, like i mean he yeah he give he sucks in this movie really hard i i haven't really said that about any of his other roles but he's he's bad at least in captain corelli it was like funny because of the accent yeah but and, and he was like having fun in right. this he's supposed to be tortured but he just looks really sleepy <laughs> like it looks like he looks sleepier beyond. he looks sleepier than the fucking uh bringing out the dead <laughs> it looks like he's gone beyond being tortured and now he's just like bored with it all yeah yeah he's already dead okay before filming had even begun nick found himself embroiled in a controversy over the film just as the greeks were unhappy before filming started on captain crowley's mandolin so the navajo indians were unhappy with wind talkers when they learned the film was in development in 1999 they accused Nick of, quote, dishonoring them. Sam Billison, the then 74-year-old president of the dwindling Navajo Code Talkers Association, claimed Hollywood was demoting the Native Americans to a secondary role. Like Captain Corelli, Wind Talkers was set against a real-life backdrop. Scores of heroic Navajo radio operators who sent messages that Japanese could not understand died at Saipan and Iwo Jima, even though there is no evidence of any being killed by the guards assigned to protect them. But okay, that's actually not true. I'm going to get to that later. Billison has spent a year in the hospital recovering from wounds he received in the conflict. He sat on the Indian Tribal Council and was furious that Nick uh, and not a Native American was the hero of the film. He accused Hollywood of perpetuating the stereotype of Tonto as the loyal sidekick of the Lone Ranger. He personally wrote to Nick. He said, for too long in Hollywood, our people's stories have been told only through others' eyes and in inaccurate and dishonorable ways. Even more disturbing is that it appears that this movie is going to tell our story with a white actor as a hero. He demanded that his association be given a script approval to set the record straight on the Navajo gift of our sacred language to save our country. A tribal council spokesman said, they should tell the story of the coders the way it was from the Navajo's point of view, not Hollywood's. 
But this is uh, the book again. Just as the Greek issue blew over, so the Indians outraged smoke signals diffused into thin air. So fuck that. That's, that's gross and racist. But um, the, 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 this, okay, so you have an actual code talker being like, not even, he's just saying, hey, you guys have always treated our stories through the eyes of a, of a white person. And can we, he, he just wants script approval. He just wants to see the script. And they were just, they just ignored it. See that. Yeah. And w- which is funny because Adam Beach, the actor that yeah. plays the main Navajo, he's the most charismatic actor in the entire movie. Yeah. Furthermore, I wanted to see more like they, the, the older Navajo that, that goes, that goes and fights with them. I don't remember that actor's name. I, I looked it up earlier, but he, uh, Roger he, Willie. Yeah. Um, basically the only thing, um, they ask him like, like his entire character development is like, I am close to the land and the right. animals. And then he goes outside and he plays, he like, plays his flute, he plays his flute. And that's his whole character. Yeah. And that's really frustrating because there was, a, there was so much, I mean, that's, that's what's interesting to me in the story is, is there is the Navajo's perspective. Yeah. And, you know, and, and then there was this whole thing where, where, Yahtzee that was the character's name yeah I yeah where, so. where he's like hey man this is our fight too this right. is our country too it just felt like they needed <laughs> the the Navajo in this movie felt like felt like token characters in their own story yes yes and I, I mean the only thing that almost it doesn't forgive it, but it, it, uh, it lessens the insult is that all the characters are two dimensional. Like Nick Cage's character is in a way he, he's, he is the hero in a fucked up way, but he's just, just as two dimensional as, uh, as, uh, Adam Beach's character. Yeah. And then the other, I mean, again, Mark Ruffalo is just a walking mustache who gets shelled. Like he's actually, I kind of, I kind of enjoyed this Ruffalo performance. Yeah. (laughs) Like it was, it was extremely like, clearly he was just not trying, but like there was something like there was some youthful exuberance that was coming through that. I kind of was, was on board with. It was like a mid to late twenties Ruffalo where he's like, am I going to make it? Is this the biggest film I'm ever in? Yeah. What am I doing here? Thankfully it wasn't. Yeah. Who knows, man? We, there, there's an alternate timeline where Ruffalo's career ended after wind talkers. <laughs> and then we have, um, fucking Noah Emmerich as the racist. There's just, of course, like Nick Cage can't be, uh, no. none of the other white guys are, are like visibly racist in any way, but we yeah, have the one that, like Aryan guy who's just like, that's the thing. That's one illogically, th- like mean. illogically racist. Yeah. Like, in making the one character racist and in this like really cartoonish over the top way, it takes any, uh, it, it, it's just like, yeah, there was, there were a few bad apples, but, um, well, yeah. overall this was totally legit. Well, and it's the kind of thing where it's like, if all of the other white guys in the platoon had just been mildly like white American mm-hmm. racist by like 1940 standards, it would have been like more effective. Right. Cause we would get a sense of how 
outside and alien. Right. Like the, Having the, Navajo fight alongside you actually right, is. It would feel like an actual culture clash. Right. But I mean, they, but instead it's just a bunch of white guys going like, Hey, you know, like being real friendly with him. And then one dude just being like, you're no different than a, than a Jap. Plus like you're all the same. Plus they, they make Adam Beach's character like the, like his main defining trait is that he just fucking loves America. Like there's no, like, like the Navajos in this movie who we see are, are not, um, they're not conflicted about America or its treatment of the indigenous people or anything at all. Like, like Adam Beach's character literally named his son, George Washington. Like they lay it on so So fucking thick. thick. And he's just like, he just loves America. He, he, he's given multiple speeches of, he's like, this is my country too. Yeah. And it's like, so there isn't a culture clash. You just have, it, 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 because he is not a character. He is this, he's this, uh, kind of minstrel version of a Navajo person yeah. who th- they clearly, they were so scared of even having indigenous people in this movie because of some imaginary test audience of like, y- you know, middle American racists who are like, what's that Brown person doing there? Like that, that they, they just hedge it so far that, the white people aren't characters and the Navajo people aren't characters. There's just no, there's, they're just these walking collections of character traits in service of a story that it's ostensibly telling, but well, but the isn't story really is there. only all the interesting interpersonal aspects of is the story are excised. In characters. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They, they just neuter it into nothing. And so, okay. So this gets to the, the most interesting thing that I found out in actually researching this movie is that the, uh, again, we haven't even really said what the movie's about, but it, it's like, can we, do we need to go into no, it? I, we're, no, I like, we're already like 40 minutes into the yeah. episode. Like so, at this point. <laughs> okay. So, so the Americans used, um, when they didn't want the Japanese to break their codes that it, that they were sending over their radio signals, um, they d- decided to use Navajo, uh, the Navajo language um, as because, as a basis for a code because it's one of the most complicated uh, languages on earth and there's only 80,000 people who speak it and this was only declassified in 1969 and part of the documents of the declassification specifically said that these Navajo code talkers um were assigned white bodyguards and with the specific orders to kill them if they got captured because the the Japanese would then torture them and get our code. That was actually unearthed by the screenwriters of this movie. Like, they found that. And um, so in this movie could have been and should have been like an Oliver Stone-style, like, you know, expose of this, I mean... That's that's a really like there's a lot of like moral gray area in like even just even removing the way the the U.S.'s history of uh, treating its indigenous peoples like just the idea of having these people who have a code at that they're they're like volunteering to share to save America. But then um, that there are secret orders by white men to fucking kill them like that's fucked up and heavy. But the Pentagon 
um, who, so they, I mean, John Woo and these guys had to work with the government to use their, uh, tanks and uniforms and, and all this stuff. The, the Pentagon was like, no, we don't want that. You, you can't emphasize that part. What, so the Pentagon made it. So when Nick Cage is given the order in the film, the guy doesn't say kill the Navajo. He says like the, he, first he shows this really fucked up picture of a tortured Navajo guy who's uh, been tortured to death by the Japanese. And he's like, we can't let this happen. So you have to protect the code at all costs. Do you understand? And it's like, yes. And we understand as an audience. And then later when um, Christian uh, Slater gets his head chopped off and uh, Roger Lilly's character is being held down by like six Japanese guys and Nick Cage has to decides to kill him and throws the grenade. Like the way that they had to uh, communicate that was non-verbally because they couldn't, the Pentagon said they couldn't say anything. They couldn't verbalize it. So you just have Roger Lilly like nodding at uh, Nick Cage at, to like, to kill him, which is again, the best scene in the movie. And after this movie came out, the Pentagon wasn't happy that even that stuff, that that part of the story was uh, still there. So they have tightened the way that their control when they work with uh, filmmakers and they have a list of filmmakers who they won't work with. No, uh, no. of the ones who they definitely will, who have a history of um, portraying. portraying the military in a positive light. Right. Number one on the list. Yeah. Jerry Bruckheimer. Yeah, I, I do not doubt that. Yeah. So Jerry Bruckheimer, I think they said Spielberg mm. and um, some others. Yeah. So they're, I don't know. I mean, it just gives, it's like a glimpse of a way more interesting movie that this should have been and could have been because the story is actually one with a lot of moral uh, depth and quandaries and, and it was, this, it was, it was just a squandered opportunity. Yeah. Because the thing, the, the way, I mean, obviously I know I wasn't building this movie up that much, but there were certain aspects of the story that I was excited to see how they panned out. Right. Knowing what I knew about the, you know, historical f things it was based on. Um, but it <laughs> did not deliver at all. No. I, I do want to say w w the, the plot of the movie just okay. real quick, which is, so Nick Cage is... Is, is haunted. He's a Marine who's haunted by some fucked up uh, mission that he had in, uh, in Hawaii or something. And um, throughout the movie, his, he has a tick of uh, popping pain pills that his love interest gave him because um, he, his, because? Beca <laughs> because his ear, his, oh, yeah, he right. got it, that, and, uh, a grenade blew up and like fucked up his inner ear. So he has like balance problems and uh, I guess the the aspirin thing was Nick Cage's. Uh, it's one of those things. things. One of it, he, he, uh, what we're seeing is he gets into characters a lot by like assigning them ticks. Yeah, and uh, so that was that's one of them. It's not you know it's pretty whatever, but um, so yeah, he, he's in the hospital and and uh, and uh, there's a love interest, this nurse who's sweet on him, who just disappears from the story about halfway through. And uh, they go to war, and at the very end, he dies. Rather than um, protecting Adam, or rather than killing Adam Beach's character in this, like, moment of, like, you know, they're both 
in the middle of a really fucked up battle scene and could have gone either way. Yeah. Honestly, I was expecting him to have to take Adam Beach out. But. Yeah, and Adam Beach holds the gun to his head and he's like, I know you gotta do it, so just do it. And uh Nick Cage is like, No, and uh he like he gives Adam Beach a piggyback. Um to I guess a few more feet and then like planes come and bomb the Japanese and everything's okay but Nick Cage dies and uh and then we get footage of Adam Beach with his son and wife on like some Arizona like rock step Monument Valley he's in Monument Valley yeah um just like burned like lighting a fire and and being like you know Nick Cage was my brother he, we were friends, you know, though they weren't really, um, and yeah. So yeah, it, it ends with, uh, again, the, the like next to final image, the penultimate image is a white man carrying a, a Navajo Indian, like across the finish line <laughs> being like, you know, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's pretty on the nose. And that's the movie. And there's in between those things, there's two hours of just explosions, <laughs> like really intense explosions. Yeah. Um, a couple things, just a, a couple like, you know, yeah, just stray, just, just straight uh, things I want to throw out. This was shot in Hawaii, uh, in the same, uh, locale that both Jurassic park and lost were shot in. Yeah. And, and you can see it in, mm-hmm. in a couple of the shots. Um, I would like to see this. There is a second feature length film somewhere of just all the war scene footage. We, so like I, I want like, it'd be, you know, if they did like a director's cut, yeah. like there's just one movie of only it's like two hours worth of just like the battle scenes and like, yeah. the fight scenes. It would be a better film. Uh, I think so. Um, also, this might be a little weird. Uh, did you notice that when they were showing one of the battles they're all I can't differentiate between them, but one of the ones in the middle of the movie uh, and they cut away to like when the battleships came to the rescue and started like shelling. Oh, and it's and they, and they just cut in stock. But yeah, like, very obvious, like clearly old, like a different like, film stock, stock of just of just of cannons just gun, firing. Like, cannons firing. <laughs> and then and then you just see some person on in like the grass get blown up. <laughs> so like my theory is that the 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 um, the B-roll crew like fucked up the footage they were supposed to shoot. <laughs> so they had to like last minute fly in some stock footage to like cover it. Did they, um, what they had like a hundred million dollars. Well, it's they, good. they spent it all on the, on the actual war scenes on the yeah. fucking explosions. Never enough for a boat. Every time a tank blows up, there's like a half acre that goes up in flames with it. God. Um, Okay, uh, and then the last, it's thing, true. They fucked up the forest. Like, like those trees were so on bad. fire. <laughs> Just the the ecological footprint a lot of this movie. Like, uh, like the pyro and ballistics budget on this film must have just been astronomical. Like probably, yo, probably almost as much as Cage's salary. I, um, I, I learned that it, it won something called a World Stunt Award. That uh, sounds it, fucking it, radical. For, whatever that for, is. It's 2003 World Stunt Award for best fire. And, <laughs> my, and I think it's the it's the time that the guy with the flamethrower's back, he, the flamethrower gets shot. Oh my and god! Just that explodes is, into fire. That's the coolest it's fucking really thing good. I've ever seen. So I actually, I actually videoed it off the screen. So I'm going to post it to our Instagram Hell yeah. for anyone that wants to watch it. But the straight up, this tank comes up over the hill, and Cage just goes, "All right, Johnson, light it up!" And this dude <laughs> comes out, like steps over the foxhole with the flamethrower, and he just. 
torches the ta- the tank and the entire thing blows up oh in a giant God. fireball. It's lit. Best fire. Like seriously. Best fire. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> um Oh, okay. So, like, one more thing I want to bring up. First of all, the soundtrack was horrendous. Whoa. Uh, like, typical, like, late 90s, early 2000s James, James Horner soundtrack Whoa. where every single war scene is, like, I think scenes like that are more effective if you just get the, like, raw screams and yeah. explosions yeah. and, like, cr- like chaos. It's more hellish instead right. of you have these swelling strings and underneath. it's just and- very indicative and descriptive, and it's telling you how to feel right. and to the detriment of the film. But then when that's not happening during the, like, in-between, you know, like, at night when they're, like, sitting right. and, like, you know, bonding with each other in the foxholes, there's this really... Like there's like a generic, I called it generic ethnic flute where it's like sometimes, because sometimes you can't tell like, is that a Navajo flute or is it supposed to be a Japanese flute Right. or where it's just like a general like ethnic flute soundtrack. It's like, it's like pan pipes or something. Right. Yeah. It's just like, we're not in America. Right. This is, yeah. And that was really annoying. Speaking of flute, uh, what about, and speaking of fucking on the nose, uh, the scene where Roger Willie and his Navajo flute, he jams with Christian Slater Slater on a harmonica. harmonica. Yeah. It's totally like, it's, it's like, I'm a little bit country. uh, You're a little bit rock and roll. Like you got peanut butter in my chocolate. Well, you know, man, they, they got, they, they got, the old Saipan blues again oh my <laughs> lord yeah and he like shows up and he's like he's like are you sure this is gonna work and <laughs> he's like I don't know but why not give it a try and they just start jamming really hard and uh you know we can get along I, I don't think I have anything else to say about this particular movie it's it's a piece of shit and um it makes me angry <laughs> <laughs> but the, can that be on the blu-ray release cover yeah yeah yeah. a couple side things uh we skipped the christmas animated christmas carol movie that nick cage plays jacob marley in um if anyone's actually interested in that you can watch his scenes on youtube it's not worth it there it's nothing it sucks so i i didn't watch them or do you not want to talk about it that's, there's nothing that, to say fun. there's okay. that's all there's literally all there okay, is to say you you watch it it's like three minutes of him being Jacob Marley yeah. and it, it's, he's just like Scrooge, you, these chains. And that's it. You know, you've seen no, it already. Fair enough. I, I just wanted to give you the, the space in Thank case you. you wanted to, cause the, I don't ever, the more, the more cage, the better in yeah. these episodes. So no. if there was something you wanted to dive into, feel free. Okay. Well, I, I, I've got some, some other little treats. Um, this, uh, this was a six month long shoot um, because of heavy rain. I think part of the reason that it looks so drab and everything's shot in the middle of the day was like, that was the only weather they could get uh, w- because it went on so long. Nick Cage had to give up the role of playing the green goblin in Spider-Man to Willem Dafoe, which I'm not mad. At no, that. Willem Dafoe is the green goblin. However, uh, for, as far as it I'm would concerned, have been awesome to have, like dude uh, like right like imagine cage as 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 osborne right and and then instead of uh uh who's the son who's uh who's hobgoblin james franco james franco yeah Yeah, i don't know who cage's son weston Weston. get weston in there (laughs) as the hobgoblin (laughs) um Oh, here's a little thing uh, from the unauthorized biography of Nicolas Cage, the man behind Captain Crowley by Ian Markham Smith and Liz Hodgson. 
Uh, despite the early morning calls and long days filming, Nick quickly adapted to the Honolulu nightlife, acting more like a, the bachelor he was about to become than the man worried about his crumbling marriage. That's Patricia Arquette um, out of the picture now. The seemingly tireless actor made the rounds of the clubs around Waikiki Beach. One of the Hawaiian Islands' most famous celebrity residents, Don Ho, um, performs like every night at a, at, at a spot. And that was uh, one of Nick's favorite places to go. One week he stopped in three times, dancing the night away and sipping on his new favorite cocktail, the intriguingly named Sex on the Beach. I just think it's cute that there was a time when sex on the beach was like an exotic, intriguing drink and not just like a sex in the city punchline. Okay. uh, Known for his outlandish fashion sense, Nick also indulged his taste in collector item vintage Aloha Hawaiian shirts. Aloha shirts are the traditional dress of the Hawaiian Islands for men. He dropped by Bailey's Antiques and Aloha shirts twice, astonishingly spending more than $13,000 on seven of the shirts kind of quality are these shirts they're 1950s vintage made of dupont rayon oh that's why I'm glad you asked brought back on the mainland a nightlife loving nick uh returned to the sky bar the month after his birthday to celebrate completing wind talkers he and Wu hosted a lavish forty thousand dollar party with the cast and crew around the, so it says he returned to the sky bar that's because i can't remember if i if i read this anecdote in the last episode but 2001 was nick cage's um 20-year anniversary with uh, acting between him and the, his craft. And he, he held a, a party at the Sky Bar. And this is what it says. He ordered a giant stuffed pig with an apple in its mouth uh, from after living on the islands with, uh, for Captain Corelli and uh, Wind Talkers. And uh, he invited Penelope Cruz, his love interest at the time, Francis Ford Coppola, Sophia Coppola, Edward Norton, Selma Hayek, Lucy Liu, David Spade, Michael Bay, Jerry Bruckheimer, Spike Jones, and Playboy boss Hugh Hefner. Reveling in his reputation as a hellraiser, aging Lothario Hef playfully offered his seven buxom girlfriends to Nick as a birthday gift. However, the birthday boy thought it better to politely and diplomatically decline the generous offer. Pop star Kid Rock gatecrashed the lavish bash, lavish bash, but made up for his uninvited appearance by buying Nick a 600 bottle dollar of 25 year old McCollin single malt scotch. <laughs> I'm just imagining. You can edit that out. I, no, I, no, I don't no. know. I just like, no, I'm just, I'm just imagining kid rock rolling up a like unannounced to cages party. Kid rock, Nicholas cage, Michael Bay, Hugh Hefner, Hugh Hefner, just eating a giant suckling pig together at the sky bar. like that's the american dream it is okay so as a goodbye to this book um i want to talk about some of the stuff that was on the horizon for nick um in 2003 they they sort of this is just weird this is just another one of these like what if timelines like a timeline that could have been so uh, he, he was getting more into, uh, into Saturn films. One of, one of the things that he really wanted to produce was something called Tom Slick Monster Hunter, uh, which is a true story of a Texas oil millionaire who squandered his fortune hunting Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot. Um, is this based on a true story? Apparently. Oh, wow. Uh, he was... Uh, 
okay. He's also, he's also expected to return to a family man role in the new version of the 1962 Glenn Ford and Shirley Jones film, the courtship of Eddie's father, uh, something about Ron Howard. That's actually not interesting. Um, <laughs> <It> never is. <laughs> um, he was going to be in a, in a movie basically like quiz show with Bill Murray. Um, that never happened. He was going to release a dark romantic comedy called heartbreaker Inc based on a story about a professional heartbreaker who is hired by rejected men to turn the tables on women in their lives. Okay. Um, I like this. Nick has come to realize that he cannot star in every movie he likes that comes his way. He said, it is important to maintain a balance by producing other people's work through my own company. Many times there are movies and genres of film that I enjoy, but I'm not ready to act in them, or I don't really know if I should act in them. For example, I like Hot Wheels toy cars. I liked them as a child, so I talked to Mattel and said, what do you think about a Hot Wheels movie? I've tried to get Jerry Bruckheimer involved in that. I'm probably not going to be in it, but I think it would be a lot of fun for the children. Um, they already did gone in 60 seconds. I know. <laughs> You're totally right. I love that he was, that was like a passion project for him and not like a cynical, just market. Like that he approached Mattel is really bizarre to me. He was also going to pronounce it. Or, whoa. He was also going to star in um, a version of, I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry um, with him and oh. him and Will Smith. Oh my God! Wait, was that the one with with Kevin James that Kev, came out yeah, that ended up coming out with Kevin, Kevin James, James and, and who was the Adam Sandler? Uh, oh no! Yeah, it was going to be called "I Now Pronounce You Joe and Benny," and it was going to be Nick Cage and Will Smith. He was going to be in a version of or he, he of Speed Racer before the Wachowskis did it, directed by Gus Van Sant and starring Johnny Depp. Why didn't that happen? I don't know. Yo, that, that Wachowski's version is great though. Like my like unpopular opinion. That's a great movie. Everyone watch it. A new version of Roald Dahl's classic children's story, Charlie and the chocolate factory, uh, was going to be in the works with Nick as Willy Wonka. <laughs> he was also in talks to play Iron Man. He was, he was him and Tom Cruise were in the running to play Iron Man and then uh, dude there's a world where Cage was in Chuck and Larry he was Iron Man instead of Robert Downey Jr. and he was Willy he was Willy Wonka Johnny Depp he was uh he was Superman he was Superman (laughs) yeah Cage has had a whole alternate career of of roles he didn't do yeah it's it's amazing Green Goblin yeah yeah he's the Green Goblin he's Superman and he's Iron Man Okay, this this is the last thing, and um, this is maybe my favorite thing that I, I've read in this book so far. So he's he's struggling at this point because his career is so like is this like two thousand one? Yeah, he's it's so bifurcated between like these big big budget things and uh, then smaller things that he wants to do. So it says Nick came up with a bizarre solution that shocked the entertainment industry. He wants on occasions to change his name for special project. His idea is that for certain films, instead of being known as Nick Cage, he will go by the name Miles Lovecraft. The name is inspired by jazz legend Miles Davis and 1920s science fiction author H.P. Lovecraft. Whenever you saw Miles Lovecraft in a movie, you'd know it was going to be a dark subject matter, Nick said, an independent film. It would be my own little internal protection device so that people aren't going to 8mm expecting to see The Rock. His vastly experienced team of talent agents and managers are horrified by the idea. That's it. 
Yeah. Yeah, dude. Um, next time we're going to be talking adaptation with uh, my most psychedelic friend, Lionel Williams. It's going to be a great episode. Check us out on Instagram. Check us out on the email. <laughs> the email. <laughs> uh, rate us on the, the iTunes store. You know, show show us that you like us. And um, thank you for being here. Yeah, this has been Heat Seeking Panther. I'm your I'm your host, <laughs> Miles Lovecraft. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Nick Cage. See you next time. Mm-hmm.